This is the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, a podcast brought to you by two physical therapists devoted to helping physical therapists and other healthcare providers become better educators to patients, students, the community, and each other by interviewing prominent and passionate people within the realms of healthcare and education. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast is intended literally for educational and entertainment purposes only. No clinical decision-making should be based on only one source, and therefore this podcast should not be used as personal medical advice. While care has been taken to ensure accuracy, occasionally mistakes and factual errors can be present, as we are only human. This is our journey on the road to becoming better educators, so get ready with your pen and paper as class is about to begin. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, F. Scott Field, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Brandon Pone. We have an interesting guest on the show today, joining us with some big news on a new DPT program in my current hometown of Waco, Texas. We have Dr. Casey Unverzat. Casey's the Director of Admissions for Baylor University's new two-year DPT program, slated to start January 2018. Dr. Unverzat received his Bachelor's of Science from the University of Puget Sound, his DPT degree from Slippery Rock University of PA, and his Doctorate of Science in Orthopedic and Manual Therapy from Andrews University in Michigan. He completed a sports residency in the state of Washington and is an ABPTS board-certified orthopedic and sports clinical specialist. He teaches for Score Builders, Evidence in Motion, South College, and Slippery Rock University. Dr. Unverzad is currently finishing his fellowship in orthopedic and manual therapy from the Evidence in Motion Institute for Health Professions. Uh, now, Casey, thank you so much for coming on the show today. And I realize we kept your bio brief, but is there anything else that we left out of your bio or anything you'd like the audience to know about you? Sure. Uh, I guess first and foremost, thank you guys uh, for having me on the show. Uh, I really do appreciate kind of what you're doing with your podcast. Uh, I think it fills a void that's probably existed for quite some time. You guys obviously saw the need and, and made it happen. So thank you. But yeah, that, that's my bio. But really, who am I at a foundational level? Uh, I'm a clinician. And so uh, I'm still in the clinic two afternoons a week. And I never want to let go of that. So I think too often in academia, uh, we tend to have this uh, unfortunate history of forgetting our roots at times, uh, really what DPT education is all about. Really, DPT education should be about transforming practitioners to become better providers uh, for this end result of actually better patient care. So uh, I think the key here, uh, better patient care. Okay, the patient is who this all revolves around, really not us. And so... Uh, probably just having my boots on the ground, so to speak, really keeps me in touch with what actually happens in the trenches of PT. And I would say probably makes me a better educator as well. I remember I, I made some lectures uh, not that long ago uh, for some individuals, and I just included a lot of uh, different patients in my in these uh, recorded lectures and kind of some different hands-on techniques and exercises. And and I thought they were fair. I mean, not, not phenomenal lectures. They were fair. And the student feedback was unbelievable. They were so excited. I'm like, why are you so excited about this? Um, so because because there's patients, we actually see like you you doing this stuff, um, which is kind of I don't know a slap in the face of DP or DPT education. I realized, well, we need to we need to change this. And so uh, I guess to answer your question, foundational level, yeah, I'm an educator, but I'm really a PT is is what it comes down to. It nice, and I think even so, I think that's pretty admirable. Still maintaining that clinic. Um, experience because, you know, being able to know what it's like in the real world, you'll be able to, be able to translate that and teach your students a lot more. So I think that's a really good take on that one. Yeah, and I definitely worry about that. That's that's probably my biggest fear in 
trying to jump into academia is losing that clinical side because I, like you said, I don't ever want to do that. I, I just love it too much. Yep. And, and truth be told, you have to fight for it. Um, I know we're, we're very fortunate at Baylor. There's actually time built into our contracts to treat. Um, but at some days I'm, I'm slammed with admission stuff. It actually seems more of an inconvenience to get to the clinic. Shame on me for ever thinking that. Uh, and that the clinic is really what this you know revolves around. So now you got to fight for it. And as soon as I say, oh, I'm just going to take a few months off, a few months is going to turn into a few years. Yeah, no, fair enough. So Casey, do you think you could tell our our listeners about the structure of this new DPT program that you guys are launching at Baylor University coming up? Sure. Um, so Baylor obviously has, well, as a lot of people have heard, a hybrid model. Um, hybrid means a lot of different things to different people. I know when I first heard the word kind of a hybrid model, I thought online. Uh, and when I think online, I think boring. I think passive learning. And I was actually a really big critic uh, with this model early on. And large because I didn't really understand it. Uh, and this is how it was modeled to me for the longest time. And so uh, over the past, I would say, five to 10 years, technology has really changed. Uh, we've grown as faculty. And I would advocate this model really looks completely different than what most students have probably experienced. Uh, I think most students will actually find that the whole model uh, very engaging, very interactive, and incredibly personal. Um, so there's really kind of three main components of the program, uh, one of them being an online virtual classroom. So 50% of the time is spent with this online virtual classroom. 20% uh, of our time is spent with these lab immersions. Uh, we'll talk about that as well. Then 30% is more the, the clinical education side of things. So uh, with 50% of the curriculum being an online virtual classroom, it's not self-paced. It's not passive. There, there's a very structured order to it, obviously. Uh, we really leverage both asynchronous and synchronous sessions, which might be more just academic terms, but think of asynchronous sessions like pre-recorded lectures. Um, again, when I hear pre-recorded lectures, I think boring, passive, because what I had often experienced was uh, faculty reading off PowerPoints, and it's miserable. And so we're fortunate that it's not what we do. And so oftentimes we'll actually fly down to Chicago um, to a professional film studio where they film us actually delivering lectures. So you see our face, you see us, um, and you see uh, our slides kind of in the background there and they do all the post-production work for us so it is very very similar to an actual uh, classroom setting there uh, lectures are typically 15 to 20 minutes in duration because after that uh, you're not listening to anything anyways and so uh, it's really those asynchronous sessions okay you watch them at uh, your convenience that lead us into the synchronous session. So synchronous learning is when everybody logs in at the same time uh, across different time zones across the country, and that's where you have the interactive discussions. And there's very little lecture presented in those uh, because if you've already watched the asynchronous sessions, uh, you should be coming with questions, and we're going to be coming as faculty with different lab examples uh, and patient scenarios. So uh, I'm always amazed how interactive as actual synchronous sessions are. But it it's that virtual classroom that's made to prepare you for the lab immersions. Um, and it's really the lab immersions that are the secret sauce. Uh, again, people think hybrid, they think, okay, it's an online school. You do not want to go to an online DPT school. That's just scary. Um, it's a very hands-on profession. And so uh, twice a semester, we actually head down to Dallas for labs. Uh, why Dallas versus Waco? Obviously, Baylor's main campus is Waco. Uh, but Dallas is just a whole lot more convenient to travel to. It's really what it comes down to. Um, but we spend anywhere from 5 to 12 days at a time on the ground uh, in Dallas, which ends up being roughly 85 days over the two years. And like I said, this is the secret sauce. This is, this is the best part of the program. And why is that? Um, I probably advocate 
this is advantageous for three different reasons. One, uh, when we're in Dallas, we're in Dallas. Like, well, what does that mean? Well, uh, probably a, a decent part of our faculty will actually be living in, in the Dallas area. Okay. So they're there, they're always available, but there's a handful of us that actually live geographically removed. I'm one of them. Okay. I'm actually coming at you from Western Pennsylvania right now. Um, so when I head down to the labs, I fly down there and, and unfortunately I end up leaving my, my four wonderful kids and my beautiful wife at home. Uh, but at the same point I leave changing diapers. I leave mowing the grass. Uh, I leave soccer practice behind me and my, my time, 100% of my time and, and focus and attention is on that lab. And so we're really available all day, every day, uh, when we're there at those labs. I think the other big thing those lab immersions provide is a sense of culture and identity. Uh, you know, if you want to learn a, a foreign language, you can go to your, your class, you know, one to two hours a week. You can study the book. That's fine. But if you really want to learn a language, if you really want to understand the culture, you got to immerse yourself in it. And it's the same with, with DPT education. If you want to understand the culture of excellence, the culture of humility, you got to immerse yourself in it. And so we're there a good, goodness, eight, nine hours a day, um, you know, five to 12 days at a time. And that immersion is where you really uh, almost affiliate or assimilate yourself uh, with the profession. I would say the other big part of this is uh, kind of the faculty we bring in. Uh, oftentimes with lab education, we see universities bring in, you know, second year, third year students to teach the first years. They're kind of your, your teaching assistants, and that's fine. But you just can't convince me that a second year PT student knows that much more than a first year PT student. And so uh, I don't love that model. So what we do instead is if we're going to teach on the, the hip, knee, and ankle for those few days, we're going to find the best hip, knee, and ankle PTs, and we're going to actually fly them in. They're going to be uh, the teaching assistants during that time. So not not students, not entry-level practitioners, but actually advanced, often board-certified uh, specialists, um, and they're going to be the ones functioning as your teaching instructors. And so just the, the breadth and depth of faculty is, is second to none. Wow, that, um, that, that sounds pretty big time, Casey. You guys have got production studios and, you know, experts coming in to teach like as assistants like that's awesome you know that really does sound amazing um it's could, could you maybe tell yeah. us a little bit about the benefits um that you see for some of the students considering this new model of program absolutely uh, i think one of the, the big benefits is that you can live anywhere uh and this is a real advantage to kind of your non-traditional students uh what do i mean by non-traditional with a traditional student you graduate from your undergraduate degree you go on and move to that you know, to your graduate program, you live there for three years and that's normal. Okay. That's what I did. And it's, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, with our first class, my best guess is probably 50% of the people will live kind of near the, the Dallas area. But for non-traditional students, people who've, who've purchased a home who are really entrenched in their communities or they have kids and they have an amazing, you know, support network, moving to Dallas isn't a great option. That, that's just a big overhaul. And so uh, you can actually live wherever you want across the country as long as you can travel to Dallas for those lab immersions. Uh, and so uh, again, that's part of the reason why we chose Dallas is an easy hub to fly in and out of. So it makes a makes for a really good option for those people who are geographically removed. Um, I'll say the other big advantage is a very smooth transition into a residency program. We'll talk about residencies, I'm sure, later, but the hope is after you finish the two-year program that you transition right into a residency program. We, we've structured this so that it makes for a very easy transition. Uh, and hopefully it's going to be a very normative thing to see our students go on a new residency, not the exception like it usually is. Um, and lastly, I would just say it, it's the, the time and the, 
uh, financial savings. And so if I've got the option to finish my, my degree in two years instead of three, goodness, I'm taking two. Um, but at the same point, financially, it makes sense. Uh, and it may not actually at first glance, uh, but when you kind of compare apples to apples, it does. So uh, I think tuition right now at Baylor for DPT over those two years is, is a total 99000 which is it's a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. Um, let's just say the average PT school for three years, you know, you graduate with $80,000 in tuition. Um, but when you compare apples to apples, if you finish uh, at Baylor in two years, that third year, you're either doing a residency where you're paid or you're doing uh, essentially you're practicing as an independent practitioner. Again, you're getting paid. Let's just say the average PT gets paid, you know, 65,000 out of school. All of a sudden, you're paying down your debt. You've got a year of experience under your belt. And so you're actually positioned well ahead of your peers at a three-year institution uh, by completing it in two. Nice. No, I think those are some definitely some good benefits and such as well. And actually, last week, we interviewed Dr. Mary Blackington of Nova Southeastern University because they have a hybrid program down there as well. Yeah. And just hearing what you're saying and stuff, there's definitely some striking similarities there. And it's ironic too, she even also said originally she was the biggest naysayer to the whole model as well until she yep. until she actually really got down and really learned about what it was and looked at the dad and stuff. And then they tried it out and it was working for him. And I know before, Keith, you kind of mentioned that, you know, of course, the goal is after this kind of a program, the goal will be some sort of residency. Would it be a specific residency that you guys would go for or would it kind of just be like a match basis? Like how... How, do you, how are you guys thinking that that would work? Yeah, I know you guys understand residency education, but a lot of, you know, listeners may or may not. And so, you know, when you graduate from PT school, you're a generalist. Um, you should be as good at treating an ACL as you are a stroke as you are COPD. Um, and if, if you know what you want to do, whether it's orthopedics or geriatrics or pediatrics, it only makes sense to get really good at that, especially out of the gates. And so um, we partner with Evidence in Motion to uh, more or less support our residency education. We've got residencies in ortho sports, geriatrics, neuro, peds, um, and really whatever ABPTS offers, you know, we've got access to it. So uh, you need to do a residency that, that is a passion for you. We're never going to force you into a program that you don't like. Gotcha. No, thank you. That makes a lot more sense. And you know, and Casey too, of course, one thing that we probably want to talk about, especially regards to academia and starting up DBT programs, is regarding the accreditation process about how that works. So do you think you could tell us a little bit about the CAPT process and how the accreditation process kind of will work for Bailey University's DBT program? Absolutely. No, I'm, I'm glad you bring it up because actually I don't mind talking about it because I think it's it's often mis, uh, misunderstood. So uh, CAPTI, Commission on Accreditation and PT Education, uh, they're really the governing body for PT accreditation. Every single DPT program across the country has gone through this process, or if they're a new program, they're, they're currently going through it. Now, you have to take a big step back and realize what is CAPTI's goal? CAPTI's goal is really to protect the consumer, the consumer being the student. Um, they need to produce uh, quality clinicians, again, for the end result, actually, uh, to be good providers and minimize liability to a patient. So there's two steps to accreditation. Uh, there's candidacy and there's accreditation. So candidacy is what you need before you can actually launch a program. You cannot start a cohort without candidacy. Uh, and Canada, or the bar set for candidacy is really, really high. And that's a good thing uh, because there was a proliferation of PT programs not that long ago that probably didn't espouse to the highest standards. And CAPTI really kind of tighten up the reins to make sure none of this actually happens. And so we submitted our, our candidacy application, goodness, probably back in December of 2016. 
Uh, Captive reviewed it. They came and did an on-site visit in February. And we find out in May, boom, candidacy denied. We thought, oh, no, not us. Um, it, it was a really good humbling moment for us, actually. Uh, and, and we realized two things. One, it's actually normal. Very, very normal to be denied candidacy that first time uh, because, again, CAPTI is really trying to raise the bar, which is good. But the biggest question is why were we denied candidacy? And that actually relates less specific to the PT program itself. It actually related to uh, a very unfortunate sexual assault crisis that really happened at Baylor University amongst the football team. And I think a lot of the individuals are aware of this. Um, and so Capula really wanted to make sure that we can ensure that the safety of our students and, and the, the frustrating part for us was this is an isolated incident that happened in Waco. You know, we're going to be largely in Dallas. Um, but anytime you can actually improve safety, improve Title IX compliance, that's a good thing. And so uh, Baylor University has done a top-notch job of really cleaning up Title IX compliance issues so that uh, when we go back to uh, CAPTI here in, in a couple weeks, actually, for our reconsideration, we've got a very, very strong case to uh, submit to them. So we'll go back to CAPTI in a couple weeks for our reconsideration visit. We're very confident that, that we'll get through that, which is why we're actually recruiting a class right now. And we'll find out in November uh, whether we get candidacy or not. By some terrible chance, we don't get candidacy. Boom, you don't start a class. Uh, again, such such a small uh, potential for that. So what happens after that? You go through the next two years, and right about that time that first class is about to graduate, that's when you uh, apply for actual accreditation. So Capti comes back to make sure and says, you know, did you do what you said you were going to do? Um, to my knowledge, there's never actually been a program that got candidacy that didn't get accreditation. Okay, the CAPTI's not going to come in and say, you put in these two years, you, you've spent this hundred thousand dollars, we're not going to credit you. It just doesn't happen. And so we're definitely not going to be the first. Um, so that's really the, the process of, of CAPTI accreditation. Okay, so Baylor gets accreditation, um, everything's running smooth. Tell us a little bit about some of the basic requirements for students that are looking to get into the program. Yeah, our actual uh, entry-level prerequisites uh, are actually very, very similar to most other institutions. It's actually fairly standard across all programs anymore uh, as far as what coursework is required. Uh, we have a minimum GPA of a 3.0. We do require GREs. Uh, we actually don't have a minimum GRE score. I think as admissions, I, I have a very interesting role to try and figure out not just who's going to graduate from our program, uh, that's often the metric that, that individuals use. Well, we know that GPA and GRE is a pretty good predictor of who's going to graduate from PT school, but really not a good predictor of who's going to have the, the social skills to actually uh, communicate with patients, who actually has true grit and determination uh, to be a game changer in PT. And so we're currently evaluating lots of different metrics to actually uh, determine, again, not just who's going to graduate, um, who's going to really excel in the field of PT. Yeah, I think that's kind of, you know, I, I know we talked about this on a previous episode with Ben Fung, but there's a lot of students that may not have the highest GPA and the highest, uh, you know, GRE, but at the end of the day, they're really good clinicians, you know, and, and I think finding that and, and kind of weeding that out, like you said, is, is definitely a tough thing to do. So, you know, kudos to you for, uh, for all the work you're putting in with the admissions position, but, um, Aside, you know, you talked about a lot about the benefits of a, of a two-year model and, and some of the things that, you know, are really looking to, to set Baylor apart, but what is one aspect that you really feel is going to set this Baylor program apart from other programs in the nation? Uh, I would say it's probably the fact that we've designed it from the ground up. 
And I think oftentimes students think, okay, so you're just taking three years of curriculum and shoving it into two. No, you can't do that, okay? Neither can we actually give you two-thirds of the information. It certainly wouldn't fly with CAPTI, uh, nor would it actually serve the student. And so we really started from the ground level, kind of rethought everything as far as how we deliver synchronous and asynchronous learning, how we do clinical education, which is remarkably different than most other institutions. Um, and so it will just have a completely different feel than your traditional academia, uh, largely because we, we were willing to put in the time, the work and the money uh, to start this from the ground up. So as you've kind of alluded to, there's a lot of programs looking at us and a lot of different institutions trying to see, well, where's this going to go? And I will absolutely guarantee you that once we get full accreditation, uh, we're not going to be a minority. Uh, we'll be kind of at the, at the head of the ship because my best guess is within 10 years, probably 50% of programs will have a significant hybrid component um, to their program. Yeah, no, that's interesting. And I could definitely see that happening as well. And and Casey, I'm going to step back a little bit and kind of ask another question kind of regarding CAPTI. And you kind of mentioned before that, you know, initially there's the application process, submitted it, usually candidacy gets gets granted. And then after some time, accreditation if if the standards are met. Do you think you could kind of tell us some of the basic big requirements that CAPTI is really looking for for maybe um, a new professor or even a new group that's looking that's starting up a new program as such? Just just to give our audience some context. Sure, it's probably easiest to answer it kind of in what is CAPTI usually ding um, programs for? And I would say one of the hardest things for new programs that the CAPTI is really looking for is. Do you actually have a qualified uh, director for your program? Uh, they have some very stringent qualifications for who could actually be your director of the program. Uh, and it's actually really hard to find. We're fortunate in that we actually have probably six different faculty who could function um, technically in that directorship role. But that, that's a big one. Uh, the other big thing that CAPTA requires is at least 50% of your faculty have to have terminal degrees. Um, and, and that's a big feat anymore. And so programs often struggle with that. They also want to make sure you actually have the um, clinical affiliations or, or clinical sites necessary. When you got a class size of 100, that's really hard, uh, especially with a lot of these clinics are, are getting you know, requests from, from several different universities. Hey, we want you know, to place students in your clinic. And as a clinician myself, I, I feel that weight because we get you know, inquiries all the time from different programs. So uh, programs are often knives that they lack sufficient clinical affiliations. Uh, and then also just qualifications of faculty, just because you have you know, your DPT and your advanced board certification, you're an OCS or an SES, doesn't necessarily mean you actually have, uh, you know, the, the ability to teach. And so they really want to see, do you have any history of teaching uh, that can be supported in the classroom? Yeah, and that's actually a really good transition to the next question here, Casey. And, you know, of course, you've done a lot of education thus far throughout your career and not just in academia. But do you think that tell us, in your opinion, what makes a really great educator? Sure. It's not a degree. Uh, I, I wish it was. It'd be a whole lot easier. Uh, and it's not simply a passion. Uh, there's a lot of people who are very passionate about teaching. Passion's good, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a great educator. And it also, a great educator is not necessarily the best clinician. I've worked with so many brilliant PTs, and, and they're phenomenal in the clinic. And I would, I would trust my broken body to them any day. Uh, they're truly top of their field. But I don't think they could actually teach basic math to my eight-year-old. And so, um, the same is true. I've met some educators who are incredibly engaging. They're a joy to listen to, but when you really boil down their content, uh, there's not a lot of meat to it. And so 
Uh, in some sense, the ability to teach, I think, is, is kind of a gift. Um, this gift can actually or absolutely be honed and refined. Uh, but I would say it's it's relatively difficult. I'm not going to say impossible, really difficult to create a good educator and someone whose DNA probably doesn't support it. Um, so I, as I look at the faculty, who probably inspired me the most. Um, someone who actually said, you know, had something worthwhile to listen to. And kind of when I was younger in my career, I thought, well, when I grow up, I want to be like them. I kind of realize uh, one that the best faculty are often the most humble, teachable faculty, and that's that's probably what really drew me to Baylor the most. Uh, these are some of the, the biggest game changers in PT education that are on faculty. You wouldn't know when you sit there in a, in a conference with them or in a meeting. They're the most humble people I've ever worked with, and that humility tends to make a great educator. Um, I also realize too they tend to have a few years under their belt, but not ancient by any means. Okay, I'm not saying we need to be 80 years old to, to start teaching, but I see a lot of young PTs one or two years out of school saying, "Well, I want to go in and teach DPT education." That's great. But you got to get some clinical experience under your belt first, um, because again, that, that's what it's about is actual patient care. And I would say probably the third one here is kind of this infectious intellectual curiosity. Um, I had the joy of spending last week in, in Phoenix with a fellow named Tim Fearon. Um, Tim is a, is a brilliant fellow. Uh, he's a clinician. He's also a, an educator. Um, his intellectual curiosity could not be squelched. We actually started patient care at 5:30 in the morning. We had patients at 5.30, 6, 6.30, 7. And I'm thinking, all right, we, we worked through lunch. Surely by 4 o'clock, he's going to be done for. This man never skipped a beat. He never blinked. It, he was just laser light focused on what he was doing because he was generally curious. Um, but he was also honest. And I had watched a lot of kind of recorded exams by Tim. And each time he had done one, it was a slam dunk. You know, He just, boom, he, he healed that patient. It was amazing. So I figured when I'm in the clinic with him, um, it's going to be the same. It was a really good moment for me to realize it, it wasn't, you know, he had a lot of slam dunk cases, but there's a handful, you know, he just, he, he missed it or the patient didn't get better. I, we made a couple people worse. That didn't phase him. He was honest enough to say, <clears throat> that didn't work. Let's go here. Let's try this again. Uh, and so we often don't bring that into academia. We, we keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, but actually having the, the academic honesty to say, you know, that this isn't working, I'm going to, I'm going to be willing to change it. Even if it chips away at my pride, that that's absolutely necessary to be a good educator. Yeah. Those are a lot of really good points, Casey. Um, what are some tips and pointers you would give to a young clinician or a fresh PT looking to get into the world of academia, or maybe if they're looking to pursue a position like the director of admissions or DPT program director, what are, what are some steps they should look into taking? Absolutely. I, I would I'll get your roots, you know, in, in deep and be truly be the best clinician you can ever be first, uh, be a really, really good clinician. Uh, and then once you are there, it's worth stepping into more of an adjunct role. Um, that might be a, you know, a teaching assistant at your local university might be, you know, participating in labs at, you know, Baylor, uh, but step into that adjunct role to kind of see what it's like. And then maybe after that, you start teaching uh, con ed, so something that doesn't take a ton of commitment uh, that you actually kind of get your feet wet. And then somewhere in this time frame, you start exploring terminal degrees. So if you're going to go into, uh, you know, full-time professional DPT education, it, it would behoove you to actually go on and get your, your terminal academic degree. And I think you guys had Rich Severin on maybe back in August. He, he did a stellar job of explaining kind of difference of you know, between the PhD and the DSC and the EDD. Uh, a lot of students don't get that. And so exploring, the best pathway um, to that, you know, one of those three degrees is definitely worth your time. 
And I would also just say, find a good mentor. We're so used to finding mentors in the clinic. You know, we don't just throw our students out to the wolves. But as you step in academia, it's really no different. Um, I'm one of the, the younger faculty on here at Baylor, and I really appreciate John Childs, our uh, you know program chair, who's really kind of taking me under his wing to teach me the ropes, so to speak. Um, and it's not always a pat on the back. Okay, mentorship is not you know you're doing great, keep it up. Uh, there's been some really hard lessons to learn, uh, but I'm going to be a much better educator and a team player because of that mentorship. So make sure you identify someone within academia who can mentor you along the the way. Yeah, no, Casey, I think those are some good points, man. And especially for me, too, because that last question kind of indirectly, I'm not too far off from that because I'm a two-year therapist and I'm just looking to get into teaching at some degree. You know, whether I want to go into academia or not, that that remains to be seen. But I definitely want to get involved with being a CI, maybe an adjunct or a TA at some part. But I agree. I think that I I definitely got to get a little bit more experience and learn a little bit more first before I kind of jumped into that realm. So, you know, Casey, first off, thanks so much for all that you've said, you've said today throughout the interview. I mean, I've definitely learned a couple of key concepts, especially with, you know, with Baylor, with Capti and a couple new takeaways about, you know, what makes a really good educator. And I thank you for that. I think that was quite valuable and hopefully valuable to our listeners as well. Um, we'd like to ask this question at the end of each episode, kind of as our wrap up. And I'm, I'm sure if you listen to the show, you probably know where I'm going with this one, but <laughs> the the question is, if you could change one aspect of education, um, DPT or other healthcare provider related, what aspect would you change and how would you change it? Yeah, way to give me the easy question. Appreciate that. No <laughs> um, yeah, I think that the biggest thing I would love to see change specific to PT education is really just a, a reduction in cost. Um, because right now, we're creating, in a lot of programs, we're creating some excellent PTs who are never going to be able to buy a house or raise a family because they can't pay off their student loans. Uh, and so, uh, yes, I'm a huge advocate for a two-year program, whether it's via hybrid or brick and mortar, that we're never going to get rid of brick and mortar institutions. And I don't think we should. Okay, There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but we have to figure out how we can streamline uh, education in order to reduce the costs uh, for that education or else we're more or less going to, to work ourselves out of a job. We're not going to have incoming PTs. Um, and I would say part of the solution to that is, is creating the do or two-year DPT program uh, and then having a very streamlined approach to an integrated residency. And this is really no different than, than the medical model. Um, I'm not saying everybody needs to move into a residency after graduation, um, but it really should be normative and really not the exception. And so how do we do that? We have to to create more residency sites and options, uh, not just you know not just institutions that just take one student at a time. Uh, and fortunately, I think residencies were dominated by ortho for so long, um, and, and that makes sense because the majority of PTs will go into outpatient orthopedics. Um, but finally, we're starting to to catch up a bit with some of these other specialties like geriatrics or neuro or peds. Uh, and so, uh, like I said, I would love to see reduction in cost, likely via to your education. Um, and, and residency is normative, not necessarily mandatory. Yeah, I like that uh, that outlook, especially with um, the new committee meeting coming up in November uh, with possible movement toward a mandatory residency. It'll be interesting to see how that all shakes out. Uh, Casey, thank you again so much for coming on the show and, and taking your time out to talk with us uh, about this new and exciting DPT program. Uh, would you mind telling our audience a little bit about um, some deadlines that might be coming up as far as admissions go um, and uh, where they can find you online and on social media if they have any questions? 
Absolutely. I mean, this has been a joy, so thanks for having me. Um, so we will continue to review applications up until October 31st, and so you can apply up until that deadline. Uh, I would encourage you apply sooner rather than later if this interests you, and I really mean if. Okay? It takes a unique student um, to excel in our program, and our program is not for everyone. And so uh, if this excites you, go to our website, you know, baylor.edu slash dpt and apply by October 31st. It is a rolling admissions, though, and so we're currently uh, reviewing applications now and sending out admit letters. So I would encourage you not to wait until uh, Halloween there to actually submit it, but you technically could. Uh, as far as social media, do check us out on Facebook. It's just Baylor University DPT uh, or our Twitter feed. It's just Baylor DPT as well. Awesome. Thank you so much for all that. Thank you, gents. This has been great. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.